by quoting my guru Swami Muktananda who always began his talks by saying in Hindi Sabko Barisanmane Kesat Pemse Hardik Swagat with great respect and love I welcome you all with all my heart and he used to say that that's the cornerstone of his understanding of spirituality to welcome another person with love so in that spirit I welcome you, and it's a great joy to me to be um, remembering Baba on this auspicious day. So a few photographs. <clears throat> so this is uh, the, uh, the particular teaching that I'm going to talk about tonight took place at a question-answer session with Baba in Ganeshpur in the early days of my time with him, uh, and uh, this picture is, shows him in the middle of a question-answer session. You can see the little microphone, lavalier microphone, pinned to his shawl. Um, he's sitting in the corner of his room, and it wasn't for amplification, it was to record all the talks, and because the, of uh, the record that we got, we have several volumes of talks of his, of question answers with his volumes that I treasure very much. So there's Baba telling a funny story uh, during one of his sessions. Next. Look at that, mix the cross What's on it? Go back. Yeah. Yeah. He has that right. yeah. He mixed the cross on his hand. Jerry, it's surprising that he would have a mystic cross. Well, they're not <laughs> yeah. very common. No. Not like that. Well, he's the most uncommon human being I've ever met. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, anyway, next. <clears throat> and this was during my time. Bob is standing at the door of the meditation. Everyone's looking at that. kind of thing that the the presence the absence of it is not meaningful but the presence of it is meaningful so you're not lacking anything if you lack one okay <laughs> so this is Baba standing at the the entrance we used to go through that doorway into the meditation hall the veranda um, which you can see and that's the present Samadhi he's buried right behind there now but this was definitely during my time with him <coughs> and finally, uh, well, that was a great moment between Baba and me in Melbourne, 1974. And so uh, we don't have a photograph of the, the moment of this teaching, so that will have to do. <coughs> Baba, Baba's saying that, did I want to tell you that you are the self? And I said, yes, Baba. He said, no, you're not. No, that's not what he said. 
Read my book, you'll hear, you'll read about it. <clears throat> okay, so, uh, first a uh, couple of preliminary questions. This is a question um, from those days. Uh, <clears throat> a Western seeker named Hanuman Das asked, uh, is it necessary for disciples to live with the guru closely for a long time in order to get the most from their association with him? Very good question. Uh, I, uh, I had concluded that, yes, that's what you have to do, just live with the guru. I thought, everything else, I'm too stupid to do anything else, so I'll live with him. Uh, but Baba doesn't answer it that way. Baba says, it's not necessary to live with the guru. What is necessary is that you have love for the guru and that you have interest in the truth. Mumakshutva, dedication to the truth, to, to, uh, to growth, to spiritual practice, and so on. So quite a rare quality, but it's the sine qua non of spirituality. That's the quality you need. So what he calls here interest in the truth. A person who is not established in his sadhana, in his spiritual practice, may stay very close to the guru, but he's still far away from the guru. It is not enough merely to be with the guru if you don't follow the guru's path. If you live close to the guru physically, but remain far away from sadhana, from practice, you'll not attain much. When Nityananda Baba was in this world, there was a boy with him called Radkya. Nityananda loved that boy very much. And other people also gave him a lot of respect. Baba used to receive different kinds of food and cloth, and Radhya was the main distributor of these things. He would eat very good food, and he became very healthy and strong and puffed up. This is a, he's fat. <clears throat> then he grew up and became 15. There was a river close by. That's the Tansa River near Ganeshpuri. Uh, and every day he would go fishing. When Baba wanted Radke, he would call him, and people would say, oh, Baba, he was, uh, he's gone fishing. And Baba here means Bhagwan Nityananda. Baba calls him Baba. <clears throat> so he's gone fishing. If a per Baba says, Baba Muktananda says, if a person does not have discipline, if he does not know the greatness of sadhana, if he's not pure, then no matter where he is and no matter what he does, it's worthless. The boy would sleep right next to Nityananda Baba, but all he did was go fishing. So he never attained anything. Terrible statement, isn't it? Never attained anything. You know, <clears throat> during our last trip to uh, Ganeshpuri, uh, I, uh, I, was, I read this uh, question answer out, and I was worried that some of the old timers there who were around, uh, you know, in Baba's day, and even back to Bhagwan Nityananda's, like uh, Indu uh, or Madhu, uh, that one of the Indians there would come to satsang, because they used to come to our satsangs all the time, uh, and might know him. In fact, Rudkir himself could be around in the village. You know, wouldn't that be embarrassing? <clears throat> so I called Indu aside. And uh, she told me that his real name was Ladku. 
and that he had died quite some time before, so I felt relieved. Anyway, Baba goes on. No matter where you live, you should become engaged in sadhana. So it's not about physical closeness, but you should do the practice. And there are different layers of practice. On one layer, the practice is to do your meditation, do your mantra repetition, and so on, read spiritual books, read Baba's books, so on. And that's certainly a valid level. Uh, but even deeper level, there is the discipline of the mind and of the movement towards the self, the movement towards the shakti. But all this is important. If you do that, then you're close to the guru. He says, you should lose yourself completely in devotion. Only then will you benefit from everything. If a person is not seeking that, then even if he stays with the guru, he does not really benefit from the guru. He appears to be living with the guru, but he actually lives with somebody else. He lives with his mind, obviously. If you live with the guru, having the desire for liberation, you'll progress very quickly. But if you fully understand the guru, you can never be far away from him. <clears throat> Your inner self is God, and it is also the guru. A saint said, consciousness, God, the guru, the shakti, live right in your body. The inner self is always with you. And how can you ever be away from the guru? Someone asked the saint, Rabia, Rabia, where does your guru live? He lives with me, she replied. How can that be? The knowledge my guru has given to me and the mantra my guru has given to me are with me in this very body. That is why he lives with me. The Sufi saint. <clears throat> and Baba says, a true guru stays with you, no matter where his physical body is. He does not live far away from you. And that goes even when he's taken samadhi, when he's gone away, he's, he's actually very close. A guru is not a mere individual body. He's not an individual being. The guru is divine shakti. He is called a guru who transmits his own shakti to a disciple so that it permeates every pore of his body. When a disciple receives shaktipat initiation from a guru, <clears throat> he's given a mantra. The guru is one with the mantra, and in the form of the mantra, he enters the disciple. So how can you say that the guru is far away from you? He's constantly within you, and his energy permeates every pore and blood cell of your body. He's very close to you. And if you understand that the, the shakti is the guru, it means that when you move towards the shakti, the shakti is like a feedback mechanism. And when you move towards the shakti, when you discipline your mind and make it move in the direction where the shakti is pleased, you'll know that. And then you become close to the guru. <coughs> So now the, uh, talking about the initiation, you know, and, and I was looking forward to um, uh, doing a workshop because it's so important to me, I wanted to workshop it. But uh, as you heard, uh, we put it off for three weeks because we want to make sure that uh, local people can come to the workshop. Uh, we've been pretty much uh, insular for quite a while and now it's opening up and so I want to make that available. So, all right, so now 
in August of uh, 1971, Baba started doing question answer sessions. And I'd been there for uh, what is uh, uh, March to August, uh, five months. And uh, there was no cognitive, uh, inf you know, cognitive content to the sadhana. You just did the same thing every day. You worked, you chanted, and so on. And so there was no particular instruction that happened. And Baba saw that we were starving for that. And so he began these question-answer sessions. And we used to go into his room and sit with him, and we would write out any questions we had on a piece of paper, and he would answer them, translated by Professor Jane. Um, and so at the, at the second session, the first session I just watched to see what it was like, and it was just fantastic. I was so happy, but I took everything personally. Uh, whatever Baba said, I thought, say, somehow saying I'm, I'm not doing well. Uh, <clears throat> but in the second session, which was uh, August 12th, I asked my first question. So I said this to Baba, I said, must we do sadhana without desire? For desire is rajasic when we want the fruits. So I, his I, uh, issues of sadhana that I'd been thinking a lot about. Um, my brain couldn't get around certain things. I thought, you know, desire is bad. You want to try to be desireless. That's what all the scriptures say. Um, and yet I was burning to attain something spiritually, just burning. And I thought there's something antithetical about this burning desire and the state of desirelessness. So. I couldn't figure that out, so I asked Baba that. It wasn't quite the question I really wanted to ask him, but it was on its way. And I was also worried about my ego. I started to see the issue of ego was coming up for me. Anyway, Baba said, there are two kinds of desires. Ordinary desires, which bear good or bad fruit, and are not very important. That's very significant. See, Ordinary worldly desires, you want this, you want that. You, if you want something that's okay, that might bear good fruit. If you want something that's wrong, it'll bear bad fruit. But he says, not very important. You know, the normal external desires that we have. And, Baba says, the other kind, the desire for salvation or emancipation, which is desireless desire. The scriptures sanction the desire for higher aims. Even the Upanishads say in one prayer, oh my mind, think high thoughts and let your desires be noble. Desire to become God. And <clears throat> do not desire the perishable and trivial things of the world. So Baba is saying that, that to desire the highest, the desire knowledge of the self, to desire knowledge of the divine, is good, and it's not like ordinary desires. Baba goes on, even if we do not desire the fruits of our actions, we're bound to get them. Take the case of two workers in a factory. One works towards his salary every month, and the other not at all conscious of the salary. <clears throat> Yet both are going to receive their salaries, for that's the fruit of their work. You get it whether you desire it or not. Likewise, those who serve the guru receive the inner state of the guru as a gift from him, 
even if they do not have any desire for it. Another wonderful nuance from Baba that, that whatever you do will have fruit. So if you're doing practice, if you're meditating every day, if you're contemplating the self, it's bound to bear fruit. Here I was doing all these things, but all I was is worried about it. <clears throat> he goes on, in my own guru's time, everyone who went to him had certain desires. They asked for this thing or that thing. But throughout my period of association with him, I didn't ask for anything. I did not even ask him about sadhana. I was particular about only one thing, and that was if he asked me to do anything, to obey his bidding fully. If you're serving God, then it means that you're surrendering or giving yourself over to him. And when you surrender to him, what you get in return is the Lord himself. So why have desire for salvation? Mirabai says in one of her poems that she gave herself fully to God, and that wasn't the end of it. In turn, she gathered Lord Hari fully in her arms. So if you give yourself totally to the divine, you're filled with divinity. Baba says, desires for worldly gain are to be deprecated, but desires for God-realization, for salvation, for seeing the Lord's form, should not be considered as desires. The yoga of action in, in the Gita is a sublime yoga. We're talking about the Bhagavad Gita, which talks about karma yoga and how to do that without desire for the fruits. As Sage says in his commentary on the Gita, you have a right to actions, but not for its fruit. In other words, don't worry about the fruits of the actions. The fruit is bound to come. In fact, it will pursue you, so why worry about it? And he perceived, Baba saw that, that it was actually a worry that I was, I was talking about, just worried. When will I get this? Will I ever get this? Will I ever attain? And Baba said, you do these practices and it will come. But that wasn't quite the answer, the question that I wanted. And so this was the one that was on the 5th of November, 1971. <clears throat> and uh, so this was in the next session. What was that date of that one? That was in August, huh? So it was a few sessions later. I was. Yeah, I was uh, percolating this one. What do you call it? Gestating it. And so I said, and I was worrying about my ego and these bad desires and bad things I was discovering. One of the things you discover, uh, as uh, Swami Turiananda said, sometimes when you get Shaktipat, all you see are your own flaws and all you, you go through this whole horror show sometimes, uh, which is ultimately very good. In the short run, it's quite horrifying. Um, <clears throat> but I asked Baba this. You often stress we must love ourselves, and only then will, be, will be, we be able to advance in sadhana and love others. I've made many unpleasant discoveries about my own ego. How can I avoid the tendency toward self-hatred? <clears throat> Baba says... You feel self-hatred when you're face-to-face -face with your own ego. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's right. Why don't you make yourself aware of egolessness? 
I'm listening to Baba. What does that mean? I said, ego is there. When I say that you should love your own self, I mean loving the self which is beyond ego, not your ego. You can spiritualize your ego by identifying it with the self. Instead of saying, I am this or that, say, I am the self. The ego is nothing but a sense of self. And that's what blew my mind. When Baba said those words, I felt like full force of his shakti hit me somehow. It wasn't anything I hadn't read in all the books, you know, but it's a very different thing when a transmission takes place. And it blew my mind. First of all, when he said, you can spiritualize your ego, because I thought of the ego as this horrible thing. And he was saying to me, you're looking at it wrong. He says, identify the ego, you're just identifying it wrong with your personhood and your desires and, you know, and your reputation and your other things. He says, identify it with the self and say, I am the self. And those words chimed in my brain like no other words. I am the self. I am the self. I'm not this thing or that thing. I am the self. And then he said, the ego is nothing but a sense of the self. <clears throat> and then in reflecting on it later, what he meant was, is that the ego is the, the self identifying with something lesser. The self is eternal. The self is vast. The self is, is infinite. But then we say, our self is this body. Our self is our petty drama, is our story is our career and our, you know, our concerns and our possessions. So we identify the self as something smaller. Uh, <clears throat> and so, but the ego is a sense of the self, but we misidentify it. So let it go back to what it truly is and say, I am the self. He goes, Baba says, how much better to say, I am the self than I am a sinner or I am a king? I am a sinner, and I am a king. So he's talking about two kinds of thoughts there. I am a sinner, which is I later called tearing thoughts, thoughts that tear into ourselves, where we hate ourselves. I'm worthless, I'm no good, I'm bad, those kinds of thoughts. And then the others are inflating thoughts. I am a king, I'm the best. And then we go from one to the other. Some of us have more predilection for inflating thoughts and others for tearing thoughts. Uh, but neither of them is where we want to be because if you inflate, then along come a pin and deflate you. And if you're deflated and you're having tearing thoughts, then you're already in misery and hell. Uh, so neither of them is satisfactory. He says... It's much better to say, I am the self, than I'm no good or I'm the greatest. I am the self. Then the ego, too, becomes helpful. And that was the one that really blew my mind. The ego becomes helpful. Continually repeat, I am the self. And Baba goes on. We used to recite a hymn whose refrain was, Shiva, hum, Shiva, hum, I am Shiva. That provided a healthy channel for the ego. I am Shiva, I am Shiva, I am the self. 
For a great seeker, the best thing is to identify the ego with the soul, identify the ego with the self. If you were to look at it subtly, you would find that the ego too is a stirring of the soul. We fall into misery because we don't know how to use the ego. If we were to repeat to ourselves, I am the self, I am truth, I am perfect, the ego would be of great help. It would become a powerful mantra. And I don't know what he did to me, but something went into me most powerfully. And I was in bliss. I was in complete bliss. And I'm thinking, I took that as an initiation. I am the self. I am the self. I'm going, I am the self. And uh, uh, I went, and we, went, we left the, the room and went down to the uh, garden where I was doing my work in the lower garden. And I'm watering plants and I'm going, I am the self, I am the self. And I'm in a state of ecstasy. And then Baba walked along, came up to me uh, in the path and he was very sprightly. And he said, oh, Shankar liked that answer, he said. <laughs> and I said, yes, gee, Baba, I really did. Yeah. So that was it. And then uh, <clears throat> what happened there was... It's very hard to describe, and it's very hard to communicate it, but um, my brain was redirected. I had, I had, it was what we used to call in the academy a paradigm shift. Um, the idea that there's, you have a paradigm, uh, in spiritual circles they call it a view, a, a philosophy, a philosophic way of regarding the world. So a Vedantin may have the view, the paradigm, that all this is an illusion, that only the self is real. And uh, a Samkin might have the, the paradigm, uh, this, is, this physical world is very dangerous and I have to separate myself from it or I'll be contaminated. Or I am contaminated and I've got to work like hell to get out of it. Um, and a Shaivite will have the paradigm, uh, all this is the self, all this is chitti, all this is Shiva, all this is Shakti, and so on. <clears throat> so I had a paradigm, a yogic paradigm, which was uh, based, I guess, on the way I grew up, is that you, 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 you establish a goal and you work towards the goal. You make incremental steps, you study, you learn something, the way you learn a language, the way you learn any discipline, you, you practice, you study, and you do it, and then eventually you get there. Now I applied that to my spiritual life. My spiritual life was, um, there's a goal, which was called self-realization. Now I didn't quite know what that meant. I mean, I knew what playing the piano was, I knew what uh, learning to play chess well was. I knew what learning uh, algebra meant. But when it came to knowing what the self is, I had no idea. But I thought, I'll make small gains and go and like climb the mountain, slowly climb the mountain, and then I'll, I'll get there. Will I get there? I don't know. Tell you the truth, I don't think so. Um, not me, because I have too many tearing thoughts which I carry with me. And so um, 
<clears throat> so that was my paradigm. And then when Baba said that to me, always say, I am the self, I felt like he was saying, you have my word for establishing yourself at the goal already. You're placed at the goal. Be at the top of the mountain. You are at the top of the mountain. That's the way I envisioned it. It was like a mountain. You're at the top of the mountain already. And the only thing that's going to get you off that mountain are all your bad thoughts. Both your tearing thoughts, your negative thoughts, or your inflating thoughts. Boy, am I great being here on top of the mountain. And then suddenly you're at the bottom again. Uh, and so it was like a complete paradigm shift. The goal was already reached. All I had to do was notice when I was losing it and get back and stay at that point. So that was a huge paradigm shift that lasted forever, that never changed after that, that point. And I realized that that was a reference point, and I knew very well when I wasn't there, I wasn't in that place, in that clear space of good feeling, in that chaktified place of the self, and I knew then that I had to get back to it. And sometimes to get back to it meant that I had to examine the way my mind was working and to move in the right direction. And all this was preliminary to the Shiva process, because Shiva process is nothing but that process, it's because the, 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 uh, the paradigm of the Shiva process is that you are already the self. You're at the top of the mountain. However, blockages arise, and if you can free those blocks, you return to the top of the mountain. And sometimes we need to help each other free ourselves of that block, and then we automatically go to the top of the mountain. So that was a great moment. I don't feel that I can truly convey uh, what happened there because it's uh, mystical, and I don't even have a mystic cross, do I? <laughs> You're supposed to say yes. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I found another uh, question, which I'll share. I thought we, that I wanted to work on that in a little workshop, and we'll do that in three weeks. We'll workshop these ideas. Um, but I have another question that would that remind me of it, different angle. But uh, the question Baba got was, in order to wipe out one's ego, can one overcome the tendency to seek praise by an attitude of self-deprecation or self-condemnation. Wonderful. This is somebody who had inflating thoughts and so was wondering whether by putting himself down, <laughs> I could have told him, no, you don't need that. Uh, but Baba, Baba, um, Baba addresses this person's issue very interestingly. Baba says, self-praise doesn't do much good. And those who are given to it fall into all sorts of traps. For example, they practice or pretend to practice certain disciplines for the sake of praise alone. And I met a lot of those in the early days in India. People are free of it these days, here anyway. Um, but they, 
people would ostentatiously meditate in a certain way, and I could read their mind and they'd be saying, look at me, I am a great yogi. Are they looking? Like that. And there were people like that. <clears throat> so they, they, they do it for praise alone. But whenever you depend on others for anything, whether it's for praise or something else, you become a beggar. Bob is redirecting it so that it's interior, that you don't look to others to support you, but if you're in touch with the self, you don't need that support because you have that powerful inner support. And no amount of adulation and praise and so on can give you that if, you, if you're afflicted by tearing thoughts and negativity. <clears throat> Instead of desiring praise from others, one should be satisfied with one's own self. <clears throat> one who becomes a disciple in order to receive praise will be severely tested by the guru. See, Bhakti, he's not even addressing the question, is he? He's not saying whether you should have negative. He's saying, don't have these inflating thoughts. I've had disciples who told me again and again that they'd seen the blue pearl and had seen me within the blue pearl and had surrendered fully to me. I said to them, you had better be careful about what you're saying because anyone who's seen the blue pearl has also achieved complete humility. It would never make any claims about it. <laughs> I don't know. <clears throat> Baba says, a person addicted to music will hum or sing even when nobody's there to hear him. He sings because he's in love with singing and has become its victim. <laughs> Both praise and self-condemnation are beside the point. What matters is faith in the self, devotion to the self. It is absurd to court praise from people about your great devotion and surrender. Your actions alone matter. Otherwise, when the guru pretends to flare up, even slightly at a student, the student takes his loincloth and runs away. He's <laughs> always said, he took his loincloth and he ran away. <laughs> Because <laughs> if the guru says anything, it's harsh. <clears throat> All right, so, so uh, let's meditate that. <clears throat> I always felt that uh, I received a couple of mantras from Baba. One was, of course, the initiation mantra, Om Namah Shivaya, which is very dear to me and I practice a lot. But very especially was this mantra, I am the self. Now, I am the self is, uh, is what we call a, a G statement, uh, or a Mahavakya, a great, a great statement. It's like the great Vedic proclamations, Aham Brahmasmi Tatvamasi. In fact, it is Aham Brahmasmi, I am the self. <clears throat> but it can also be repeated as a mantra. And um, although these Mahavakyas are meant more as a, a, a cueing of understanding, a location of understanding. So when you say, I am the self, let's try that for a moment. Just say to yourself, I am the self. 
I am the self. Now, it means you're looking away from all the identifications that you give yourself, all the ways you identify yourself, both positive and negative. In other words, you, you identify yourself as a good this or a good that, or you identify yourself as a failure or a bad this. Move your mind away from those and say, I am the self. That self stands between praise and blame. It stands in the space between inflating thoughts and caring thoughts. I am the self. And you can say that once and just focus on that space, that clear space of good feeling. Or you can repeat it like a mantra. I am the self, I am the self, I am the self. And when you feel firmly established in that place, just stay in that place. I felt that Baba on that occasion gave me a great gift. And when you get a gift from somebody, often you, uh, you take it and you put it in your, your trophy room and you look at it and you let people look at it and you uh, uh, brag about it or you tell you, congratulate yourself. But when you get a gift of spirit from the guru, the best thing you can do with it is share it with others and share that gift with others. And so I want everybody to share in that moment and to focus on the self and to keep the focus on the self because in that movement there's the end of suffering and in that movement is connection with the divine and in that movement there's true self-knowledge and the end of suffering. So let's, uh, let's meditate on that. We'll meditate for 10 minutes on I am the self, and you can move with that any way that your inner self uh, dictates. And once again, with great respect and love, remembering uh, my great guru, I welcome you all with all my heart. Satguru Nath Maharaj Ki Jai. We'll meditate for 10 minutes.